0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night and it is time to talk about science and skepticism. As always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page and you can find this and other episodes uh, as podcasts and you can find that either on the website, Evidence-Based Radio, or uh, on your favorite podcatcher. And I do try and keep up with the Facebook page throughout the week. I like to post things there, especially that are a little more visual or have videos, uh, or are just, you know, sometimes just cute animals just to sort of brighten the day up a little bit. So yeah, um, let us get into it for tonight. Today, we're actually going to begin with a tale of both science and skepticism. Now, it's pretty clear that if you've listened to me at all, you know that I am obviously a scully rather than a malder. But that doesn't mean that I'm completely closed to the idea of cryptids or aliens or ghosts or whatever other Mulder-esque topic there may be. It simply means that I want evidence. Grainy photos, hyper-zoomed splotches of light uh, dancing in the air, and phenomena that can be explained better as weird quirks of neuroscience don't persuade me of the reality of extraordinary things. If you hear something going bump in the night, it's probably the pipes. And so I'm obviously a fairly large skeptic on cryptids, but if somebody, you know, found the remains of Bigfoot, did a DNA test and showed that it was indeed an unknown primate, I would quickly move towards believing in the reality of Bigfoot at least once the paper had been written uh, and (laughs) peer-reviewed. So what is this all leading into? Well, you may have heard already, but an international team of scientists are planning on searching Loch Ness for signs of Nessie. So, of course, Nessie is the famous cryptid of Loch Ness people have said that it basically looks like a plesiosaur of course plesiosaurs went extinct a very long time ago so it is almost certainly not one (laughs) but you know hope springs eternal for some people and i actually am okay with this because it's a really interesting study that they're going to be doing they're going to be using a new technique uh at least a new technique for this particular area, they're going to scour the lock for environmental DNA or eDNA that could belong to an animal unknown to science. So eDNA has actually been in use for some time in marine environments. It's used by researchers to track whales and sharks, which are kind of hard to keep track of sometimes. But you can know where they've been because you can basically find traces of them. So as any animal moves through their environment, they leave traces such as scales, uh, flakes of skin, bits of fur, feathers, and of course, waste products. This DNA can be captured, sequenced, and then used to identify that creature by comparing the sequence obtained to large databases of known genetic sequences from hundreds of thousands of different organisms, said team spokesman Professor Neil Gamel of the University of Otaga in New Zealand. Now, again, this is a serious expedition. There are researchers from Britain, Denmark, the U.S., Australia, and France. And I hope that people will actually be able to... Uh, accept the results and have confidence in the results, especially if it turns out that there are no unusual DNA signatures that would suggest large animals, which is what I assume they're going to find. Many of the supposed sightings of Nessie have either been debunked or proven to have been mistaken identity. A log floating on the lock can look huge and alive, especially when seen from a distance, uh, in fog, and with the various currents that are in the lock. Because when you have, it's basically very long and. Uh, deep. And so you get kind of wind waves that flow across it. And so when you've got a log sort of bobbing in those waves, if it's a little bit dark, if it's a little bit foggy, it can look really much like a real animal. Also, otters are known inhabitants of the uh, this body of water. And they actually have a behavior that we know about where they follow one another closely. And that could potentially make them look like one longer animal, especially perhaps, say, a humped animal, rather than the several distinct otters that they actually are. Now, over the years, there have been several earnest scientific attempts to find something in the lock, but all of these have failed. The only thing that's really been found of any note was a replica of a boat used in the 1970 film, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Definitely not Nessie. But what's great about this current hunt is that the prospects of finding definitive proof for or against Nessie, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what can actually be discovered from this expedition. While the prospect of looking for evidence of the Loch Ness monster is the hook to this project, there is an extraordinary amount of new knowledge that we will gain from the work about organisms that inhabit Loch Ness, Gamal said on his university's website. Now, they expect to find evidence of, they do expect to find evidence of new species, uh, but most likely those new species will be bacteria. And of course, the other thing that they are hoping to be able to do is find some good evidence and do some tracking of what is unfortunately several invasive species that have recently been sighted in the lock, including Pacific pink salmon. And so as with any ecosystem, invasive species can throw off the delicate balance of the existing food web. So hopefully they will be able to give researchers and conservationists some good uh, data on what is actually in the lock so that they can figure out if they need to do interventions or if things are okay the way they are. Um, And so, yeah. Now, they expect to be able to publish their results in early 2019. Now, There are some other really cool inhabitants of the loch currently. So there are sturgeon, uh, which are giant fish. But the problem is is that they're uh, easily endangered because they take a long time to grow and mature. There are also uh, catfish, and catfish can actually grow pretty big. Uh, One of the sort of ideas of what early stories about Loch Ness about the Loch Ness Monster might have been, were that they might have been uh, large catfish. So uh, there are several species of catfish that can get humongous. Uh, The Wells catfish, for instance, can basically become the size of, I would say the size of a walrus, and that's a big fish. And so there are definitely fish that can become big. And we know from sort of medieval times that there were fish, at least fish stories and fish illustrations of very big fish. And uh but unfortunately, those probably don't exist anymore. We have definitely worked our way through all of the big fish pretty much everywhere in the world. Uh we have fished them out, and we have that's a whole nother story about how when you take the biggest fish out, you end up actually creating pressure to make the fish smaller, but anyways, that again is a different story for a different day. Uh, Finally, Gamel notes that in general, the study will be a good public display of science. We have the opportunity through this project to demonstrate the scientific process, how hypotheses are established and tested, the need to replicate, to use controls and accounts, for observer bias using double-blind methodologies. These are all important parts of the story. So I am looking forward to being able to report on these uh, these results when they come out, and hopefully they will get a good result. Now, let's move on and talk about creatures that we know exist, but have a surprising feature that is actually kind of baffling to scientists. So it turns out that some lizards have basically lime green blood, which of course means that their muscles, bones, tongues, and the insides of their mouths are green as well. The green color is actually caused by high levels of biliverdin, which is a toxin. <laughs> These lizards should be dead, says Christopher Austin at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, who has studied them for decades. Now, what's even weirder about this is not only has this developed and is a toxin that is running through their veins, it has actually developed. It is. It, it has evolved, not once, not twice, but four times, four separate times this defense has uh, which, We think that it's probably a defense, or the researchers think it's probably a defense, that it has evolved four separate times. Now, all the lizards live on the island of New Guinea. So scientists had initially believed that they all evolved from a common ancestor, because that seemed to make, you know, the most sense. Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest answer is usually the right one. Well, in this case... They went and they took DNA from several species and it shows that the lizards, some of them are not even closely related at all. And they also found two new species when they did the DNA samples and they found two further species that have been discovered but haven't been described yet. And so that added to the five species that were already known means that there are now nine different species of these lizards out there with this crazy green blood. Now, they do all belong to a single genus, Prasinohema. And uh, But other than that, they diverge. And so some lay eggs and others give birth to live young, and they're actually found in a, in a large variety of ecosystems uh, from lowland forests to mountaintops that are almost two miles above sea level. <laughs> and so as noted by Austin, scientists don't yet understand why lizards have developed in this way. By all accounts, they should be poisoned and died. In most animals, hemoglobin's red pigment is rapidly broken down to the toxic green pigment biliverdin when the uh, blood cells are ready to die. However, in most animals, it is then converted into another toxin, which is yellow, and that is called bilirubin, and then it is actually cleansed from the body by the liver. Now, fun fact, (laughs) these two pigments, uh, the green... Biliverdin and the yellow bilirubin are actually what causes uh, those bruise colors on your body. So, when you have, when you, you know, poke yourself with something by mistake, or you, like me, uh, run into the corner of your desk, (laughs) uh, you might get a bruise and it will take on that sort of greenish or yellowish hue. And that is from those toxins, but they're not in large enough. Uh, concentrations to actually hurt you. It's just that's that's what's there. And so in lizards, clearly the process is blocked, which means that they end up with huge concentrations of biliverdin, up to forty times that of a lethal dose for humans. And so of course the researchers are trying to figure out why. We don't yet. We don't know the answer yet. Says Austin. There must be some selective advantage. So the leading hypothesis is that biliverdin helps protect against malaria. So it's known in humans, for instance, that higher levels of biliverdin can actually kill malaria parasites in the bloodstream. However, the lizards still get malaria. Now, it turns out, though, that this might still turn out to be the answer because there are so many kinds of malaria parasites that they suspect that the lizards are in a sort of evolutionary arms race against them. So as the lizards get sort of more toxic blood, well, then different malaria parasites learn how to get around it being toxic to them. And so then are able to infect them and so on and so forth. Now there are actually also a handful of frogs and fish with green blood, uh, as well as these lizards, but, uh, they are pretty rare. People, uh, vertebrates with green blood. But in invertebrates, blood can be a variety of colors. It can be red, yellow, green, purple, or blue. And that fact brings us directly into our next story. (laughs) Uh, And so basically, what we are going to talk about now is a quote-unquote living fossil. Uh, They have lived for longer than most of Any other animal on the planet, Uh, they evolved before the dinosaurs and they're still hanging out with us and their blood is blue, a milky sort of light gray blue that looks distinctly alien. And, of course, they look distinctly alien because they have been used, in part, directly as inspiration for some of our movie aliens. So, of course, uh, I am talking about horseshoe crabs. Now, you might not know it, but the blue blood of horseshoe crabs, which are, of course, not crabs. uh, They are much more closely related to actually spiders and scorpions. Uh, It is essential to human health. Now, we don't actually ingest it or anything like that, but it has an almost magical quality, which makes it essential for modern health. It is extremely sensitive to toxins from bacteria. And so currently, the blood is harvested from the uh, horseshoe crabs and is used in contamination tests. And so basically, it's used during the manufacture of Everything that is intended to go inside of a human, so needles, medical devices, IVs, everything, all are tested using derivatives of horseshoe crab blood. And until recently, again, the only way to do this was to actually harvest the animals en masse and extract their blood. Now, most laboratories try to keep the animals alive and release them back into the ocean after harvesting. Uh... This amazing precious blood from them. Uh, However, an estimated 50,000 still die in the process every year. So you can uh, imagine that getting pulled out of the water and uh, being drained of a bunch of your blood and then sort of put back in the water and have you know the researcher be like good luck you know that's that's a pretty shocking uh thing to happen to the animals and especially if it happens more than once they can you know get uh tired or they can have something happen while they're kind of, you know, knocking around inside a giant crate with a whole bunch of other horseshoe crabs. They have pointy bits um, that are not necessarily meant to be particularly offensive. But when you are in a giant crate with a bunch of other horseshoe crabs, you can, you know, get into trouble. And of course, when you dump a bunch of them back into the ocean, it makes it easier for predators to find them. Um, And so basically, this is a problem, especially because if they were to, for instance, go extinct, we would lose this incredibly important thing uh, that is required for basically the biomedical industry to exist. And so, uh, as with all species on Earth these days, they are definitely facing pressures that have dwindled their numbers, and that is even beyond just the fact that they keep being pulled out of the ocean, milked for their blood, and thrown back in there's also uh, obviously climate change issues and pollution and uh, in Asia, so horseshoe crabs are found only in two places on the uh, Pacific shore of Asia. And on the Atlantic shore of uh, the U.S. And so, for instance, in Asia, what's happened is that a lot of seawalls have been put in to beaches where the horseshoe crabs traditionally would have spawned. And so they can no longer reach those beaches. And so they no longer have places to spawn. And so especially in Asia, there has been a pretty large decline in uh, horseshoe crab numbers now the thing is that of course all of this means that it's in the best interest of both the crabs uh, which again are not crabs but i'm just going to say that as a, a shorthand and humans find a different solution of course it happens just it just so happens i should say uh, that there actually is one and it has actually been available for 15 years So Jeek Ling Ding and her research partner, Bao Ho, excuse me, uh, began working on phasing out the need for horseshoe crab blood back in the mid 80s. Now, at the time, uh, Ding was working at the National University of Singapore, and she was basically asked by the hospital's in vitro fertilization department to look into why they kept losing embryos. And so, obviously, they suspected that there might be bacterial contamination somewhere that they just couldn't figure out exactly where it was coming from, what was happening. And so, the standard test for this was and still is LAL or the Limulus Amoebocyte Lysate. Now, The limulus refers to limulus polyphemus, which is the species of horseshoe crab that is native to the east coast of North America. Amoebocytes are cells in the blood of the animal, and lysate refers to the material that escapes from a cell that has been lysed or broken open. Um, It can also refer to something that actually causes that lysing. And uh, so the key was to make Horseshoe crab blood, uh, oh, so this is the key, excuse me, this is the key, of course, that makes horseshoe crab blood so important to medical science. The first person to realize that this blood held a special property was Frederick Bang. And so he was at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and was also affiliated with the Department of Pathobiology at the School of Hygiene and Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. So he published a paper way back in 1955, and uh, it was entitled, A Bacterial Disease of Limulus Polyphemus. And so in the paper, he described the results of his study of the creature's immune system, because that was what he was initially studying, was the immune system of these uh, animals. And so what he found was that what he actually did was he, he injected them with basically seawater and sort of watched what happened. Um, and so what happened was that when he injected bacteria from seawater into the animals, it caused their blood to clump into what he called stringy masses. And so this clotting allowed the animal to seal the invading pathogens away from the rest of the body. And of course, what was so amazing about this, uh, I shouldn't say of course, uh, but what was so amazing about this is that even after the bacteria had been boiled and so therefore the water sterilized, uh, you could still inject it and it would still actually clump. And so Bang realized that this meant that the blood was reacting not just to the bacteria itself, but also to toxins produced by the bacteria that could linger even after sterilization. Now, literally up until this point, they were not able to have anything that showed that. And so they were not able to say, oh, well, this clearly has toxins still on it, even though the bacteria are gone, because they didn't have any test. And so people up until that point would fall sick to what was uh, titled injection fever or saline fever. And so even though the needles had been sterilized, as far as everybody was concerned and figured that it was perfectly safe at that point, they would still have these toxins on them, which could even lead to uh, septic shock or death. And so at this time, there was... By this time, at least um, you know by the '50s, they had sort of developed something, and uh, it was unfortunately a little bit um, a little bit sad. <laughs> um, so what they would basically do is uh, the standard test for contamination at the time was to inject samples of whatever it was into rabbits. The rabbit's temperature would then be checked every 30 minutes for three hours for signs of fever, which would indicate bacterial contamination. Now, rabbit's blood actually clotted similarly to that of the crabs, and that was one of the things that he sort of looked at in his paper. Now, over the next 15 years, Bang, along with pathologist uh, Jack Levin, developed a standardized way to extract LAL. It was not until 1977, however, that the FDA gave approval to switch from rabbit tests to LAL kits. Now in the lab, researchers can simply add LAL to a material, basically flip the vial over and see if it turns solid. If it becomes a gel, the sample is contaminated. It's a lot easier than raising and keeping rabbits and having to, uh, you know, monitor them in the way that was standard before that. Now, it also obviously kind of removed the uh, harming of animals to a different part of the process, at least. But the problem is it still hasn't removed completely the harming of animals. And so, basically, horseshoe crab blood is incredibly profitable. Uh, By the early 80s, a quart was worth as much as $15,000. And so, for instance, part of the reason that Ding started doing her work was that the LAL kits that she would have needed in order to test the in vitro fertilization embryos was far too expensive, One kit would have cost her $1,000 in Singapore. So she first started out to make her own lysate, basically cutting out the supply chain uh, and the sort of pharmaceutical middlemen. However, the Asian horseshoe crab uh, that she had access to is a much smaller crab, uh, and it couldn't really be bled much without dying. And it turns out that she also couldn't breed them in the lab. Uh, they didn't seem to be able to breed in the lab. She tried in vitro fertilization of the horseshoe crabs, actually, uh, funnily enough, but it just it really didn't work. And of course, it's kind of hard to keep them in the lab and to do all of the work. Um, And so, for instance, when you're trying to use those crabs and you're trying to do tests with them, if something gets on the blood, it very quickly uh, turns to gel. And, you know, even if you hadn't yet hit it with the actual sample, and uh so what she decided was to try and create a lysate without the need for blood at all. Now, the way to do this is a fairly simple uh is fairly simple in con in concept but not necessarily in practice. The gene or genes responsible for creating the lysate in the crabs would be isolated and inserted into something that was easy to grow in the lab, like yeast, for instance, and so the technique is called recombinant DNA. And what it is, is you take DNA from one species and insert it into another. And so in 1982, Eli Lilly uh, began marketing insulin derived from bats of, vats of bacteria rather than from the uh, pancreases of pigs, which is how it had been done previously. And so basically all modern uh, human insulin that is sold in, uh, drugstores that all comes from, uh, genetically engineered bacteria. So, uh, if you're a, uh, sort of earth mother type that doesn't, that eats only organic food and things, and you still unfortunately have diabetes, sorry, but, uh, your your insulin is coming from, uh, yeast that have been genetically engineered to produce that insulin. And uh you know this was a huge breakthrough because it no longer required animals to be sacrificed in order to create the insulin and it also it's a lot easier to make insulin that way. You can have a much larger supply. And of course that's a story for another day about how uh the pharmaceutical companies that supply insulin at this point uh, are charging exorbitant amounts for it that are just incredibly ridiculous. And uh, again, one of my things that I will always uh, agree with anyone on is the fact that uh, pharmaceutical companies are not uh, great at the whole caring about people thing, um, at least the the sort of corporation itself. Uh, the individual scientists, I will argue, are actually in it for making the best and uh, most helpful drugs to actually cure and help people. But the CEO and the board and the shareholders just want to make money. So that's how you get insulin that used to be $10 now is like $1,000 and there's has been no change in how it's made, it's simply they realize that people need insulin or they'll die, so they will pay for it or they will die and uh, several people actually have because uh, a lot of people have started trying to uh, quote unquote ration their insulin and of course, that's not a good thing, but we are getting completely off track. <laughs> uh, Ding actually had the advantage that by the time she started trying to do this, scientists had determined that a molecule molecule called factor C was what was responsible for detecting bacterial, bacterial toxins. And so she began to look for the gene that codes for the creation of factor C. Unfortunately, again, because the blood is so incredibly sensitive, it was hard to work with the animals. You have to bake all bakeable glassware to 200 to 220 degrees for several hours, she said. And so that was in order to actually have a surface where not only the bacteria was inert, but the toxins were no longer there in order to trigger the gelling of the blood. Now, they were also forced to even uh, buy treated water uh, because, again, it's so hard to get this bacteria and toxins off of things without uh, doing a lot of special preparations. But eventually, they were able to isolate the gene for factor C. Now, the next step was to find a carrier for the gene. It turns out that yeast wasn't actually a good fit. She actually tried two different kinds of yeasts and neither really worked. They just kind of fell apart uh, when you tried to extract the factor C from them and they just didn't, they didn't produce it in a way that was viable. But in the late 1990s, Ding and Ho took a course in the U.S. where they actually learned about a technique called baculovirus vector systems. So in this process, a virus is inserted into the gene, um, inserts the gene into the gut cells of an insect. And then that insect basically becomes a factory producing the required molecule. This turned out to be, you know, kind of a eureka moment because of course insects and horseshoe crabs are actually evolutionarily connected. They're both arthropods. And so this did the trick and she was able to uh, insert the gene into insects and they started pumping out factor C. And so hooray, right? Well, of course, as you know uh, from the beginning of this story, uh, that is not, you know, it's not next step profit because uh, there is a real lag uh, when it comes to medical science and uh, getting things actually to market. So it is, of course, been years since the first recombinant factor C test became commercially available, Um, but most companies, most pharmaceutical companies still use the LAL test, which is still derived from uh, fresh blood. Now, there's several factors of why this is. For one thing, the test was only available for one supplier for many years. And because this is so important, uh, basically, pharmaceutical companies were unwilling to make the change in case there was some sort of problem with that supply. If they had a problem with the factory or if something went wrong, then there would be no supply. However, in 2013, a second supplier came on board. Uh, C. Kevin Williams, a senior scientist, uh, noted that companies stopped relying on pigs for insulin decades ago, but were still relying on horseshoe crabs for the tests that check the insulin is sterile. And so, you know, this seemed ridiculous. And of course, another huge hurdle was that in the US, factor C had not been listed and still isn't, I think, as as we speak, listed in the US pharmacopoeia. And that's basically what people are supposed to use, what companies are supposed to use in order to do all of their drug testing. If it's not in the pharmacopoeia, it's not something that you're supposed to use. However, uh, there has been a provision that you can use Factor C as long as you make sure that you do uh, backup testing, which of course then makes it harder to do because you then need to spend more money on this backup testing. But there has been a real breakthrough. Uh, Eli Lilly, again, uh, sort of leading the pack here, started to move towards using Factor C when it opened a plant in China. Again, because the crabs are more... are in decline in Asia, they were worried that if they uh, became restricted, if if the import or catching of them became restricted in China, then they would have problems. And so they actually decided to move to using recombinant factor C. And basically, they sort of drew a line in the sand that said, "After these things happen, then we 're going to start using it and they recently submitted the first drug that will call quali- it that will be quality tested with factor C for FDA approval, and that 's their new migraine drug and so uh, there are several people who are now sort of pressuring Congress to uh, get the FDA or the FDA itself to add factor C to the U.S. pharmacopoeia, which would make it much easier for uh, companies to convert. And uh, you know this is helped by, for instance, conservation groups, because they are definitely interested in uh, pharmaceutical companies converting to factor C. So uh, the sort of largest spawning point for horseshoe, horseshoe crabs basically in the world is around Cape May. And uh, one of the issues there is that there is an integral and important thing that happens there, which is that the horseshoe crabs are actually uh, really important to the survival of a threatened species of bird called the red knot. And so basically the red knots time their migration north from uh, South America to the Arctic at the same time when the horseshoe crabs come and Uh, actually spawn and they basically uh, refuel on the eggs from uh, the horseshoe crabs. And so they actually uh, will put on, uh, they will actually double their weight during that sort of short season when the horseshoe crabs are spawning. And of course, this has been going on for many years, uh, you know, probably for thousands of years. And so like the balance between those two is fine, but when you bring in humans, then you offset the balance. So hopefully uh, we will continue to move away from using the crabs and we'll move towards using the recombinant factor C so that we will be able to... uh, let this process go back to normal. So let's hope because that would be really exciting. And this is another one of those places where, you know, uh, medicine and science can be really helpful where you can take something that has traditionally had to be taken from an animal and find a way to take it from something that is a lot less, uh, you know, it's a lot less hard to accept taking something from insects than it is from uh you know a crab a horseshoe crab um and you know we can talk about the sort of ethical uh slicings of that, but I think that you know it's it's pretty straightforward that this amazing thing that's lived forever uh basically uh that has been on the earth since before the dinosaurs I'd really prefer we didn't you know make it go extinct. that would be really upsetting. All right, so uh, let's take a break and do some PSAs, and then we will come back, and we will talk about humans and whether or not we actually are as unique as we think we are. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires, and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK.
1: Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Chip is new and old, indie pop, psych pop, post punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7 inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Chip, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs classical music on valley free radio tune in to andy Musique wednesday mornings at 7 a.m for an hour of beautiful music to start your day hosted by lucy and larry
0: great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play but kids aren't the only ones outdoors ticks that spread lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent. Bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov/lime it's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all
1: meet at the park. That's our meeting point.
0: I'm meeting place at our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council.
1: Nerd Night Noho is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Hi. I'm Ruthie, and I have a recorder. Stick them up. (laughs) Listen to Out There on Wednesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. here on Valley Free Radio for interviews and snippets of life from the paths and streets of Northampton. You can hear past editions of Out There archived at weatherbeard.com slash There.
0: A world of opportunity is sitting here in the Pioneer Valley right in Hoyoke. Bringing together a variety of organizations, Passport Hoyoke helps you discover Hoyoke's varied treasures. With numerous events happening nearly every day, there's no reason to ever be bored. For a full list of events and member organizations, visit Passport Hoyoke on the web at www.passporthoyoke.org. Come discover the city of Hoyoke. Okay, so we are back. And uh, again, let us talk about humans for a little bit. So uh, one of the reasons that I think we're so good about not really being good about nature is that we have this sort of idea that we are separate from nature, uh, which is, of course, completely and utterly untrue. Uh, I think that people have this really unhealthy uh, understanding of our connection to nature. And I know that a lot of people don't really sort of interact with a lot of true nature these days. You know, we don't uh, slaughter our own animals. We don't grow our own food. We don't do a lot of these things. But still, uh, we are an integral part of nature and of all of our ecosystems. Now, of course, if you're a regular listener, you know that I am fond of stories uh, that sort of show in stark relief, ways in which humans uh, have thought that they were really unique and special, uh, but it turns out that, nope, animals do the same exact things, and that, you know, it's only a few tiny things, uh, a few tweaks to our brains that really make us different, and I'm not at all convinced that some of the larger animals, like uh, elephants or uh, for instance, some of the whales or dolphins i I 'm not at all convinced really truly that some of them might not have self reflexive thoughts and might not have consciousness and just not be sharing with us, or you know we are just not able to tell, but of course, that is completely speculative, and it is completely not something that you know is science based at all it 's just my sort of gut instinct. So this story is actually really interesting. Uh, research by anatomist Rui Diogo uh, from Howard University suggests that the idea that humans, again, have these uh, unique things. So for instance, there are, uh, there have been this, there's been this sort of idea that there are unique sets of muscles uh, for activities like walking upright, using tools, communicating vocally, and um, also for certain Facial expressions that, you know, they are unique to humans. However, he is uh, basically saying that is uh, sort of a wishful thinking kind of thing. And so he writes that our detailed analysis shows that in fact, every muscle that has long been accepted as quote unquote, uniquely human and providing quote, crucial singular functional adaptations uh, for our bipedalism, tool use, and vocal and facial communications is actually present in the same or similar form in bonobos and other apes, such as the common chimpanzee and gorillas. And he goes on to say that this study contradicts key dogmas about human evolution and our distinct place on the quote unquote ladder of nature. And so, Diogo, along with colleagues at the University of Antwerp, they looked at seven muscles that were supposed to be unique to humans. Now, there is a challenge to this. Uh, it's hard to find apes to dissect, obviously, uh, and it's hard to find anatomical drawings of the required muscles. Uh, and so he overcame this by looking at, basically, he took a broad look at all of the research on ape anatomy, uh, and occasionally sort of extrapolated from the available research where he would see that they were looking at something else. And then you would see hints of those muscles in the drawings and, uh, in the descriptions. He was actually able to also dissect several Bonobos who had died of natural causes, Uh, And so he found all seven muscles in bonobos, chimps, and gorillas, with each muscle either being very similar to or basically identical in shape. So for instance, in three of the seven bonobos dissected, the researchers found the fibularis tertius muscle, which had thought to be exclusive to humans and used in upright walking. They also found muscles associated with speech in the larynx and face of some chimps and gorillas. We need a more thorough examination of why these muscles are present in apes, and in some cases, in just part of a population within a certain species. Are these muscles essential for the apes that have them, as adaptationist evolutionary scientists would argue? Or are they evolutionary neutral features related to how their bodies develop or simply byproducts of other features? Now, again, because modern anatomical studies of great apes uh, is pretty hard, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of apes available, period, and you don't really want to uh, be experimenting on them. Many scientists have relied on older work and on conjecture. And of course, there might be that sort of touch of a need to find some way to differentiate us from our relatives. The real evidence shows we are not so different overall. This study highlights that a thorough knowledge of ape anatomy is necessary for a better understanding of our own bodies and evolutionary history, concluded Diogo. And so, uh, yeah, it turns out that, again, we're not so different from our cousins, the bonobos, and the chimpanzees, Uh, and there's only a few things that make us different, and... In fact, there are ways in which they could potentially uh, make the same kinds of sounds that we make in order to communicate with one another. And uh, yeah, and that doesn't make us bad or anything. It doesn't make us less. It just reminds us that we are an integral part of nature and we should take better care of it. Um, So finally tonight, I want to talk about another uh, critter from the distant past. So there was a report on a newly discovered skull of a mammalian relative that was found in Utah. The animal would have actually lived during the Cretaceous period, uh, back when uh, the um, back at the point where the uh, Chicxulub impact would have happened, which was, of course, one of the big factors in the loss of the dinosaurs. Um, But basically, what happened is that this animal would have been one of those little sort of mammal-like animals that ended up uh, leading to modern mammals. And so it would have lived during the Cretaceous period between 139 and 124 million years ago. And it is named Cephalodon wa karmushuch. And uh, these are always rather hard to say. Um, Cephalodon wa karmushuk. And uh, so this small creature would have actually been uh, quite big for its time. Now, uh, Cephalodon. Cephalodon references both Richard Cephali, who is the curator of vertebrate paleontology at the University of Oklahoma, um, and who has done extensive research on Cretaceous animals. Um, but so it, that is Cephali, and then Odon actually means tooth in Latin, and uh, means yellow cat in the local Ute language, and I'm sure I'm butchering that, and I apologize. And so uh, the skull is actually located in what is called the yellow cat member of the Cedar Mountain Formation. So the full translation of its name means Cephali's tooth of the yellow cat. And so experts from the University of Chicago, the Natural History Museum of Utah, the Utah Geological Survey, and the University of Southern California, Los Angeles, examined the skull. And it's actually um, being reported as a holotype, which is the first remains of a previously unknown species. They reported that. With an estimated body weight of up to 2.5 pounds, the ancient creature would seem small compared to many living mammals, but it was a giant among its Cretaceous contemporaries. A full-grown C. wakarmusuch was probably about the size of a small hare or pika. It had teeth similar to fruit-eating bats and could nip, shear, and crush. It might have incorporated plants into its diet. The animal had a relatively small brain and giant olfactory bulbs to process sense of smell. The skull had tiny eye sockets, so the animal probably did not have good eyesight or color vision. It possibly was nocturnal and depended on sense of smell to root out food. Now, it was once thought that early mammals, or early mammal ancestors, I should say, uh, were all pretty similar, Uh, but recent finds have opened up this field and shown that even before the rise of modern mammals, there were a variety of niches being exploited by small furry creatures, Uh, insectivores, herbivores, carnivores, swimmers, Gliders, etc. And so this creature belonged to a widespread and successful group of early mammal relatives called Haramidia, which included the closest relatives to the common ancestor of all true mammals. Now, the new fossil belongs to a subgroup called Henododontidae, uh, which had previously only been found in northern Africa. Based on the unlikely discovery of this near-complete fossil cranium, we now recognize a new cosmopolitan group of early mammal relatives, noted lead author Dr. Adam Huttenlocker of the Keck School of Medicine at USC Los Angeles. Now, finds like this are actually reshaping the understanding of the ancient landmass of Pangaea at the boundary between the Jurassic and Cretaceous periods, it's generally thought that the northern and southern hemis- the northern and southern continents as well as Europe and North America were completely separated at the end of the Jurassic period around 145 million years ago. Dr. Hunt Locker noted, "The problem is that the earliest Cretaceous record is not as well studied in North America or in Africa, making it difficult to compare continental vertebrate assemblages." Based on intense fieldwork taking place now in the Basal Cretaceous of Utah and in Europe, there is evidence of a North Atlantic land bridge that may have connected the Old and New World into the Cretaceous. Shared dinosaur groups found in Africa and Europe further present the possibility that similar connections existed between the Southern and Northern continents, transforming our understanding of the timing and order of the Pangean supercontinents breakup. So, again, learning new things all the time. And with that, we are going to have to uh, leave off. And uh, please do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.